Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 18 through 25. A passage, no doubt, that you've heard already this Christmas season. The announcement to Joseph. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us this morning. Well, the gospel writer Matthew has an agenda. When we come to the gospels, uh, we, we, we must understand that they are historical, Uh, The men who wrote them are telling us about things that really did happen, but each one of them are slightly different because each one of them is is writing to a different audience and they're seeking to to communicate something different to each audience. In Matthew's case, he is very concerned uh, about writing to Jewish people proving that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah, prophesied about in the Old Testament. If you look through the whole book of Matthew, break it down, you will find that there are 12 fulfillment formulas. And a fulfillment formula is just what we read here in verse 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the prophet, uh, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, and then he quotes Isaiah 7. Twelve times throughout uh, Matthew, he says this type of verse where he's showing how Jesus fulfills an Old Testament prophecy. He quotes 50, over 50, Old Testament passages throughout his gospel. So he's very concerned with people who were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures to show them just exactly how Jesus is the Messiah. You'll notice how, uh, if you look back at verse 1 of chapter 1, the very first thing he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That word Christ is, is the New Testament equivalent of the Hebrew word, the Old Testament word, Messiah. The Christ means anointed one, as does Messiah in the Hebrew language of the Old Testament. 
So this is the book about Jesus the Messiah. He's the son of David, a descendant of David as the Messiah should be, and of course a son of Abraham, a part of the children of Israel. And then if you look at verse 18, now, after he gives the whole genealogy of Jesus Christ, he says, now the birth of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, took place this way. So you see right here, we have lots of, blinking lights in the text that are telling us that Matthew is, is pointing us to the fact that Jesus is this promised Messiah. We need a Messiah. We need someone to come and rescue us and save us. And Matthew is showing us that and in, in showing us who that is in his gospel. And here before us is the account of his birth. Uh, he, he comes, uh, Jesus comes uh, to fulfill, uh, to be that Messiah that Isaiah talked about. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Very important text. It's, it tells us a couple of things. First of all, that the birth of the Messiah is going to be a virgin birth, and also that the one who is to come is God. He is God with us. He is God in human flesh. As, uh, as the scriptures tell us, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus is the one about whom Isaiah was speaking and Matthew demonstrates how this is so, particularly that he was born of a virgin, which is the count that was before us today. Now, as we look at the details of the, the verses that we've just read, um, we, we need to understand some things about Joseph and the times and particularly uh, marriage customs of the day. They're, they're a little different than our marriage customs. You know, we, uh, we men, we fall in love and uh, we ask a girl to marry us and we produce a ring, and they say yes, and at that point we're engaged to be married. And that gives us a little time to make all the plans and the arrangements and book the church and buy whatever we have to do and pick out china patterns and so forth. And then the, the day arrives, and, and we make our vows to one another, and at that point we are husband and wife. Well, in Joseph's day, it was, it was a bit different. If you look there, verse 18 tells us that Mary and Joseph were betrothed to be married. And then Joseph finds out that she was with child. And he decides that he's going to divorce her. So they're betrothed. Uh, they're not married yet, but even though they're not married, he, see, he thinks that she's been unfaithful to him. Uh, and so he's resolving to divorce her when they're not married. How does that all fit together? Well, there was a three stages to uh, Jewish marriage. First is the betrothal, which is the stage in which Mary and Joseph are in. This is considered more binding than our engagement. And what really uh, happened most of the time was that two families would come together and they would make an agreement to marry their son and daughter together. And, and there would be some uh, negotiations between uh, the father's uh, of, the, of the bride and, and uh, maybe the, the man himself or the family of the man himself. 
and the terms of the marriage would be laid out before witnesses. They would be accepted, witnesses, and God's blessing would be pronounced upon the union. And from this day, the groom and the bride are legally husband and wife, but they haven't physically come together. They haven't consummated the marriage. During the betrothal period is when the groom pays the dowry, the bride price, uh, 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 to the father of the bride. It would be maybe some service rendered, uh, maybe a cash uh, amount that he was to give, and this would take some time, maybe to come up with the money. We know that Joseph and Mary were poor. Uh, the bride price wasn't probably a whole lot of money, but Joseph didn't have any money. It didn't matter. He still has to work for it and, and produce it. And, and maybe they're in this stage where he is working to accumulate the money to give to the family so that, that they can actually become husband and wife. So they're in this betrothal period. Sometimes it was a stated amount of time. But this is where Mary and Joseph are. Well, the second element that should have come for Mary and Joseph was the procession at the close of the betrothal. The bride prepares and adorns herself. The groom, arrayed in his best attire and accompanied by his friends who sing, bear torches, they travel through the town, they proceed to the home of the betrothed. He receives the bride and conveys her with a returning procession to his own home or to the home of his parents. Jesus drew on this imagery uh, in the parable of the ten virgins. They're waiting for the groom to show up. The, the man and the wife have become betrothed and the, the bride has prepared herself and she's attended with all the other uh, ladies with her and uh, of course some of them haven't uh, enough oil in their lamps and so they have to go out and they miss the arrival of the groom and they're not allowed into the wedding feast which is the third stage, the wedding feast. After they proceed back to the groom's house there would be a big party. Remember Jesus at the wedding in Cana. Uh, they ran out of wine because these parties were not just like our parties. You know, a couple of hours in the evening, a little dancing, uh, you toast the bride and groom, and everybody goes home. Now, these parties would last like a week. They really threw down. They got after it and really celebrated. Seven more, even more days. So, in the, in the case of Joseph and Mary... Joseph has a legally binding agreement with Mary and her family. Uh, he is in the process of accumulating maybe the dowry. Uh, he's waiting the allotted time to proceed to her house to actually take her to be his wife. But then he finds out that she is with child. And he thinks something has gone on between her and another man. And so he resolves to divorce her quietly. And just as a side note, you see the character of Joseph shine through in verse 19. It says her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Uh, it shows a great amount of love that he has for Mary. Uh, but it shows his character as a, a just man, someone who is righteous, that's what the word is, uh, righteous, just. It's a legal term. He's concerned with the propriety of things. He's concerned with, with the law of God and, and doing it well. Now, if, it, if we stop there, he could probably shame Mary. Uh, he could probably come after Mary legally 
and say, you've broken the contract that we had. And, and actually, if you look at the Old Testament, subject to death, because she's actually committed adultery in his mind and in the world's mind. But not only is he a just man, but he is unwilling to put her to shame. He is a merciful man. He's a loving man. And even though he he has to do the right thing in his mind because of what he thinks the circumstances are, he's going to divorce her, but he's going to do it quietly because he loves her, cares for her, he's merciful and kind, and he resolves to divorce her quietly. Thankfully, the Lord intervenes. He breaks into this situation. Joseph is probably severely disappointed as, as anyone in his situation would be. And God intervenes by sending an angel to inform Joseph of the nature of the conception of Jesus and how Joseph is to proceed from here on out. Verse 20, as he considered, as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So God sends this angel to intervene in Joseph's uh, contemplations about the situation in which he finds himself. And I think it's amazing that this is really a simple statement that Joseph receives from the angel. Now, anytime an angel appears to someone in Scripture, it's, you know, it's a... It's a significant event in those people's lives. There's a lot of fear. Uh, a lot of times people are scared to death. And uh, it's not something that just uh, you know, happens where it's quiet and, and serene and you, know, you see a nice pretty angel with wings or a fat baby with a bow and arrow coming along and, and talking to them. In a kind of, this is a, a creature, a, a, a holy uh, heavenly being appearing to these people, and it must have made an impression. But he, he shares a very simple uh, thing. Yes, the, the child has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. How does Joseph hear this and believe this? I mean, this has not happened before in the history of the world. And here's Joseph receiving this message. So the angel must have made an impression on him, because I would have said, Yeah, right. What do you mean? Uh, not possible. Maybe it's my 21st century skepticism coming through. Uh, but Joseph receives this word and he acts accordingly. It really is amazing. So, so God intervenes by sending the angel in a dream to inform Joseph of the nature of the conception from the Holy Spirit. She hasn't been with another man. And then in t- verse 21, you're going to have a son. And you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's all the angel communicates to him, and Joseph acts accordingly. Well, God sends the angel to intervene in Joseph's predicament, but more importantly, we discover through the message of the angel in Matthew's commentary on this situation that God is intervening in human history. So yes, the angel is intervening in this situation on Uh, in Joseph and Mary's situation, but more importantly, God is intervening in the world, in the person of Jesus Christ. God is intervening in human history in order to save people from their sins. 
course, this, this whole uh, account is centered around the Isaiah 7:14 passage. Uh, a virgin will bear a son, conceive and bear a son, and, you should, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God himself is with us. God has come near to us. God has taken on human flesh. He's become a person. He doesn't look, it's not that he's just coming and he appears to be a person. No, he is a real person. He has come in the flesh. As John 1:14 says, the word became flesh. We just heard it in Sunday school. That word for flesh uh, could literally be translated meat. He became flesh and bones. It's really a, a coarse word, as we learned this morning uh, before the service. God took on human flesh for a reason. Verse, 23, uh, verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. The, word, uh, the name Jesus is the Greek form of the Jewish name or the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua, if you want to pronounce it Hebrew and impress your friends. Jesus means Joshua. And, and the word, the, the name means Yahweh saves. God saves. He, you will call him God saves because he will save his people from their sins. God is saving his people from their sins. God with us, Emmanuel, the one who has taken on human flesh. He will save his people from their sins. This is something we need to understand. You know, we talk about sin and we hear about the word sin and, you know, these religious concepts that we throw about don't often uh, make an impression upon us as they should. But we have to understand that we're lost, that, that we need a savior, that we are sinners. People don't like to be told they're sinners, uh, but we are. We are born sinners. We, because of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, sin entered the world, and now human beings are born under the dominion of sin. We are slaves to sin. Sin is our master without the Lord. And a lot of people don't understand that especially in our day and time people talk a lot about freedom I want to be free I want to do what I want to do I want to live any way that I want to live and no one's going to tell me what choices I can or cannot make but they are like people who have been living under a tyrant's regime in a country a, a, a people who live under a, a, a tyrant, a dictator who is oppressive, often don't realize how bad things are. They, they've never known anything different, and so they get about their lives as best they can. And John Owen, in his wonderful treatise on indwelling sin, that doesn't sound like a title you really want to jump into, but I've been reading it, and it's, it's wonderful and very, very exposing. But he, he talks about uh, folks who often think they're the freest people in the world, but they are, as he says, the avowed servants of sin. And they're like those people who have lived under the dominion of a tyrant, and they don't realize that they're in bondage to sin. 
He says, It is a great part of the slavery of such persons that they know not themselves to be slaves and boast that they are free. They are born in a state of enmity against God and bondage under sin, and they like well of it, as all abject slaves do under the worst of tyrants. They know no better. But true liberty consists in inward peace, tranquility of mind, designs for and inclinations unto the best things, the most noble objects of our natural, rational souls. All these are utter strangers unto who spend their lives in the service of vile and base lusts. And then he warns us, Envy not their gallantry, that they're free, that they think they're free. Envy not their gallantry, their glittering appearances, their heaps of wealth and treasures. They are, on the whole, vile and contemptible slaves. The Apostle Paul talks about the dominion of sin in Romans 6. He says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to a lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, that's, that's a picture of our world. Presenting your members, your bodies, yourselves as slaves to impurity, to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. He's telling you, now as Christians, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. All that to say, Paul, uh, well this is, uh, John Owen is writing about Paul. And under the dominion of sin, Christ has come to free us from the dominion of sin. Law, uh, uh, Sin is no longer our master if we are in Christ. Now, sin has not given up the fight. Sin is still at war with us. Sin is still trying to have dominion over us who are in Christ Jesus. And that's where the fight comes in, the fight of the Christian life. That's Romans 7. You can read that later in the day. But Christ has come to free us from the dominion of sin, from the penalty of sin, and ultimately from the presence of sin. Sin is the worst thing about being a human. It, it's, it's our real disease. That's the real problem that humanity has, and many people just want to run headlong into sin. I want to, many times, run headlong into sin. But we have to realize that Christ has come to save us from this. Why do we want to go into the thing that he's saving us from? And he will save us. You notice what the angel says when he tells Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Notice the emphasis. He will save his people from sins. Not he might save his people from sins. Uh, he hopes to save his people from sins. He will save his people from their sins. It's a sure 
thing. Christ came to earth for no other reason. He achieved the goal. We have a willing Savior. I love Isaiah 59, 16, because it describes what's going on here. He's talking about God. Isaiah's speaking about God, and it says, He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. God did it himself. He came in human flesh. Now finally, I just want to highlight two responses to this. As we look at Isaiah 7, we look at it in its context, it's actually a, uh, an account that we read there in all of chapter 7 of Isaiah about King Ahaz. King Ahaz was king of Judah. He was a very wicked king. He worshipped false gods. He sacrificed his children to, to false gods. And he, uh, he and the nation of Judah are under attack by Syria and, and Israel. They have formed an alliance. They're coming to get him. And he is contemplating going to Assyria, a rising nation, and making a pact with them so that he can fight off these two people who are his, his opponents. And so uh, Ahaz is contemplating this, and Isaiah comes to him with a word from God. And God says, don't worry about these two nations that are coming against you. They're nothing, and they're going to come to nothing, and they're not going to destroy you. Trust me. Trust me, Isaiah is telling him. And, and on top of that, the fact that God comes to this godless king and, and warns him and uh, is giving him guidance, he says, ask for a sign. I'm, I'm telling you I'm going to bring these two to nothing, and I'm going to save you. Ask me for a sign. Anything you want, anything you want, I will give it to you. I will sh show you the sign to prove that what I'm saying is true. Verse 12 of Isaiah 7 says, But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Well, it sounds noble. I will not put the Lord to the test. Uh, which is scriptural. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, Deuteronomy 6 says. But he's not being noble. He's being stubborn in his unbelief. To accept the offer of a sign would indicate that Ahaz wants to believe what God is telling him through Isaiah. However, he refuses to trust God. He's basically telling Isaiah, I don't want to hear it from God. I don't want to have anything to do with you or your God or anything. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to go to Assyria. I'm going to get them to help us. Well, he did. And Assyria took over Judah, conquered them because he didn't trust the Lord. And God says, because he won't accept the sign, and he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Matthew Henry says, Nothing is more grievous to the God of heaven than to be distrusted. Will you weary my God? Will you suppose him to be tired and unable to help you or to be weary of doing you good? And then God responds to that insult by giving Ahaz the sign of a virgin bearing a child. But the child's going to come in judgment. And he's going to ultimately replace Ahaz as the king of kings. Well, that's one example of disbelief to God's stated promise. But in Joseph, we have the obedience of faith. 
Because he heard a word from God just like Ahaz did. He heard the same promise, actually, that Ahaz heard. But he believed and he acted accordingly. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from the sleep, he had this incredible dream. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Exactly what the angel told him to do. As we hear the message of Christ, the fact that Jesus has come to save us from our sins, do we believe it? Will we blow it off and ignore Jesus like Ahaz did? Don't really want to bother with that right now. Want to do my own thing? Want to go about my sinful ways? Or will we be like Joseph, who hears the word from God, obeys, and heeds what God is saying to him, looks to the promise and says yes to it. Back to the call to worship this morning. Jesus came to save us from our sins. And to use the metaphor, he's offering us living water. Come. If you're thirsty, come. If you realize you're a sinner, come. If you're tired of the dominion of sin, come to the one who desires, who, who desires to free you from your slavery, who will give you the water of life without price. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for coming to earth to save us from our sins. Lord, help us to see how we're sinners. Uh, Lord, even those of us who are believers and you freed from the dominion of sin, we still battle with sin. We still act like we're slaves to sin. Help us to see the gravity of that. Help all of us to see the gravity of our sin. And then help us, Lord, all to experience your glorious grace, the forgiveness of sins, the, the cleanness of conscience, the, the peace with God, and fellowship with you. And Lord, we pray that we would enjoy that now, tomorrow, this week, and forevermore. And we thank you that, yes, it is that secure. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.